Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Fast casual uh, restaurants and quick service restaurants, they have been set up to do what is really going to happen is that you're going to see more people focused on off-premise and also carry out and take out. And those that have that uh, embedded already in their DNA, those are the ones right now that are going to be able to be the players. That's Doug Roth, founder and president of Playground Hospitality here in Chicago, talking about the new reality for the restaurant industry. This is WBBM's In-Depth, where we take a deep dive into a story we're telling on the air. I'm Rob Hart, and this week we continue our ongoing discussion on COVID-19. We take a look at restaurants and travel as economies open up across the country. Also, production of the big three automakers kicking into high gear. We'll get the latest from CBS News automotive correspondent Jeff Gilbert. And a lot of questions about the upcoming college year. A personal finance expert joins us with tips on how to negotiate college tuition amid the pandemic and making sure you're getting the biggest bang for your college buck. But first, let's get the latest on the COVID crisis with Michelle Cortez, health reporter with Bloomberg News based in Minneapolis. Michelle, let's uh, begin with uh, two of the big stories in the medical front this week, uh, starting with uh, Moderna's uh, news on Monday uh, that said they had uh, a successful trial of a COVID-19 vaccine. It sent the markets into a, a frenzy on Monday uh, up almost 900 points on that news. Uh, after now that uh, everyone has had a chance to uh, digest the information, uh, what is our takeaway from this study? Was it actually successful or was this just successful PR? What a great question. Uh, the answer is both, really. This I've never seen so much excitement over a handful of patients, literally. There was only 15 patients in each one of the three arms of this trial, and only a fraction of them were they even able to look at the blood of these patients and see how they did. So we're talking about about eight people who did really have a dramatic and positive response to the vaccine, which is eight people more than we had last week. So that's great news, and it bodes well for the future. But still, it's eight patients, so you need to keep it a little in perspective. And then what is the second phase of this trial? I mean, they are moving on to the next step over the summer. Right. Well, there's two pieces of it. They're going to continue following these patients and make sure that it continues to unfold the way they're hoping that it does. And you have to remember that the main goal of this first step of the study was to make sure that the vaccine didn't do anything damaging because there are situations where a virus can cause serious side effects. It can even make a, an infection worse. So we didn't see any of that, again, in a tiny number of patients. 
Then we're going to start looking at it in hundreds of patients. We're going to have a trial first in 600 patients and then rolling it out bigger than that. And at that point, we're going to look to make sure that we actually are preventing disease. In this case, all they did is they looked at the people's blood to see if, in theory, that blood would have protection, protective antibodies in it to prevent infection. But they didn't actually see if it did prevent infection. And if this uh, actually is successful, and and there are a lot of caveats there, uh, this would be uh, the fastest uh, production of of any type of vaccine for a virus uh, in in almost recorded history. Because when the story first came out on Monday, uh, I looked back at the history of the uh, development of the polio vaccine, and that took roughly three years uh, from Dr. Jonas Salk's first successful trials in 1952 to one that was declared uh, safe for, for use in 1955. And in between, there was a trial involving a million people. Uh, whether it's this particular COVID vaccine or any COVID vaccine, uh, would the sample size have to be that large before the FDA gives it the green light? Well, they definitely would not be looking for a million patients between now and then. I think that would be impossible to do. But you're 100% right that this would be the fastest by far of the development of any vaccine, specifically because Dr. Salk worked for years before he did that first trial. You have to remember that this virus didn't even exist six months ago. So to go from knowing nothing, not even having a pathogen, to having something that you can test against it in less than six months is astonishing. And you're right. I mean, even I'm surprised that it only took three years between in that development timeline for the polio vaccine. I'm not as up on that as I perhaps should be. But the you know, normally it takes years and years, even decades, and the vast majority of vaccines in development don't work at all. You have to remember that we don't have a, a vaccine against any coronaviruses, and we have many coronaviruses that cause the common cold. We don't have a vaccine against HIV. The Moderna vaccine, the leading candidate here, is an mRNA vaccine. We don't have any vaccines that actually use that technology yet. So they are really trying to thread a needle here. But So far, everything looks good, but it is going to be a breathtaking advance of science if they're able to pull this off. And if in in, in the absence of a vaccine, uh, one of the big uh, game changers as far as the economy would be concerned is uh, the development of a, a therapy that could treat people who come down with it. And that leads us to the second big news story of the week, and that is President Trump admitting that at a, at a news event on Monday uh, that he was taking uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, the anti-malarial drug, uh, because of uh, his concern about people in uh, his administration having tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, he had touted this particular drug for a long time, but now he admits he's actually taking it. Uh, what have been kind of the, the results of, 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 of using that to fight COVID-19? And uh, how will the president admitting to taking it, uh, how will that affect uh, people's attitudes toward it? Well, another great question. The fact that the president is using hydroxychloroquine is about as strong an endorsement of a product as you can get. He is the leader of our country, arguably the leader of of the world, one of the leaders of the world to be saying, to be putting his money where his mouth is, to be actually taking the medicine really shows that he believes in it. The thing that's shocking about that is that his 
public health officials are not anywhere near on the same page that he is when it comes to that. The FDA has warned against the use of the drug, especially in combination with azithromycin, which is an antibiotic, which is how he's taking it. The National Institutes of Health specifically warns against this combination, and that's because the the combination can cause your heart to beat erratically, and it can basically just make the electrical signals in your heart go haywire. And a very small number of people can actually have sudden cardiac arrest from taking this combination of drugs. The malaria drug causes it, and the azithromycin expands that risk. So he's a completely healthy person. He is tested regularly from the virus. He is probably the least likely person in perhaps the entire world, unless they're, you know, hermits out there who don't see anyone to get this virus. And for him to be taking a preventative medicine that does put him at risk for serious complications, including death, is a little bit breathtaking for public health officials. And there, the other concern that some uh, public health uh, experts had had discussed is that with the president uh, talking up hydroxychloroquine as a, a potential uh, COVID-19 therapy, uh, that could create a run on the drug that would take it away from people who actually need it. For example, uh, people who are treating lupus uh, need that uh, to, to, to survive. Exactly. Well, and it does benefit patients with lupus. It prevents malaria. That's what it's for. It prevents and treats malaria. So it is a very important drug for those patient populations. They have actually been ramping up production of these drugs quite substantially. And we did see in New York the vast number of patients, you know, significant numbers of people were getting hydroxychloroquine to help fight their infections. And as we're seeing these rates come down, there's less demand on it. So in that particular respect, it's not like we're expecting to run out of this drug, but there are other risks. People are out there trying to take it. They're trying to buy it online. There are other medicines that have similar properties that are have similar or their chemical cousins that are used to do things like clean fish tanks. We've already seen one death from somebody who took that medicine or not even a medicine. They took this fish cleaner, fish bowl cleaner in an effort to ward off, again, this virus that they probably would have never gotten and they did die as a result. So public health officials are worried that patients, that, that just Americans, regular citizens are going to go out there and try to get this and could be doing harm to themselves. Other people, doctors could be stockpiling it. They could be ordering it and keeping it in their house for their friends and family. And that could potentially lead to shortfalls if we start having a second peak in the fall and the winter. So there's all kinds of follow on impacts that could be detrimental. Health officials in Illinois announced uh, that certain hospitals were getting dosages of remdesivir uh, on the therapy front. How has that been going uh, since since some some doctors had reported there was a, a certain measure of success in using that particular drug to uh, to mitigate the symptoms of COVID-19? Well, of course, remdesivir is the first drug that we have that has gotten any kind of clearance from regulators. The Food and Drug Administration gave it an emergency use authorization that allows doctors to administer it to their patients. The studies show that it reduces the amount of time that people spend in the hospital by about four days, which is a significant amount of time. I mean, nobody wants to be in the hospital these days, so or any days, honestly. But um, it, it's certainly not uh, a cure for coronavirus. But it does really benefit 
patients. The early days of it were shown to have some significant issues when it comes to dispersing the drug itself. Uh, Hospitals didn't understand who was getting it and why they were getting it, what hospitals were receiving it. We're now starting to see more and more of it coming out. It's spreading a little bit more widely across the United States, and patients who need to get access to it have better access now. But we're going to have to keep following it to see how big of an impact it has on the outbreak itself. Now let's turn our attention to dining out. The restaurant industry is in major flux with a future that looks very cloudy. Doug Roth is the founder and president of Playground Hospitality here in Chicago. He joins us with the latest. When it comes to the restaurant business, uh, some states are reopening their economies. Restaurants and bars are allowed to reopen uh, with uh, limited capacity or maybe half capacity. Even so, from the restaurant side of things, that is more of a uh, psychological victory than a business victory. Actually, good afternoon, Rob. Uh, Correct. Uh, Actually, unfortunately, the mathematics is not working out because if you have a restaurant at this point that's 50% open, it really is not 50% of the seats because if you, for instance, and uh, friends went out and maybe it was just two other people and yourself, that's three people at a, at a table for four. So that's 75% on that particular table. could be only 50% on other tables. So what's happening is that you're not getting the volume. And unfortunately, uh, because there's no volume, you're not necessarily making that nut. When times are good, or let's just say in a time without COVID, uh, what type, you know, what level of capacity, what level of turnover of tables uh, would a restaurant uh, need in order to make money? Well, usually you're looking at about two and a half times uh, is what we call it, the turn. And if you have a restaurant, again, that has 200 seats, you base it at 75% of the restaurant's total seating and then uh, take two and a half times, that, that's the volume that you hope to, to, to be at. And that's basically looking at a restaurant also that is going to be mid-priced to upper mid-priced. Again, if you're looking at fast food or casual fast food, you need sometimes 1,000 people a day or 1,200 people a day to make that happen. So it really depends on the concept, and it also depends on uh, also uh, the type of food and the type of dining experience that you have as well. And then lastly, and very quickly, uh, who is more likely to succeed in this environment? Is it a greasy spoon? Is it one that requires uh, alcohol sales to make money? Is it one attached to a large chain? Uh, who's going to make it out of this? Well, I think uh, certainly a larger chain and certainly fast casual uh, restaurants and uh, what we saw QSRs as well, quick service restaurants, they have been set up to do what is really going to happen is that you're going to see more people focused on off-premise and also carry out and take out. And those that have that uh, embedded already in their DNA, those are the ones right now that are going to be able to be the players. That's the new reality for restaurants. How about travel? As people start to head out again, many have questions on what to ask before booking their next trip. Let's first talk to Cindy Richards, editor-in-chief of TravelingMom.com here in Chicago. If you are considering a trip later this year, you've uh, run all the, the, you've calculated the risks in your mind, and you want to go to some destination somewhere in this country that involves air travel, what are some of the questions you have to ask yourself before you go? Well, you know, when you're making, when you're deciding on a trip, right, there's five things you've got to decide. Where am I going to go? How am I going to get there? Where am I going to stay? What am I going to do? What am I going to eat? And right now, all of those questions are up in the air. You know, what we decide today could change tomorrow. So we, we put together on TravelingMom.com, we put together a list of 46 questions you should ask before you book your first post-COVID trip. 
and they really range from everything from what's your cancellation policy to uh, what's your social distancing policy. Um, and this is a really important one. Do you even want me to come? Because there are states like Maine and Arizona that have put in restrictions that say if you're coming in from out of state this summer, you have to self-quarantine for two weeks, which means your one-week vacation just got turned into a three-week vacation. And when it comes to uh, a family vacation, uh, one's thoughts immediately turn to booking an airline flight somewhere. But could this be the summer of everyone packing up the family truckster and going on the road trip because they don't want to fly? You bet it is. You bet it is. And the the theme for travel this year is really about controlling your environment. And that means public transit, like trains and uh, planes, are really not happy places for most travelers right now. Um, and if you're traveling with kids, road trips are already, right, your go-to thing. Because if you're, if you're taking a family of four or five, you, you know, you multiply that pain, plane fare by five, it gets really expensive. And you can pile them all in the car and buy a tank of gas, and you can be somewhere in a day. So road trips are the way that families are going to travel. They're going to travel closer this year. Um, and uh, RV rentals and RV sales are up because they can control their environment, right? They, they'll, they get to not only have their transportation, they've got their hotel, and they're bringing it with them, and they know that it's clean and it's not contaminated. So maybe the uh, trip to Disney World will be tabled uh, until 2021, but uh, circle Saugatuck on your calendar. You're going to southwest Michigan for the summer vacation. There you go. Or, you, or, or you're going to, um, to Starved Rock, right? And you're going to hike. You're going to do something outdoors where there's fresh air and you can socially distance from people. And, you know, when you're traveling with kids, especially little kids, this is going to be so important. If it's important for you to get to a place where you feel like you're going to be safe and not be in a crowd, you've got to have a plan B because everybody's getting the same advice, right, is to go where people are not. So if you get there and everybody decided that was the place they were going to go, you may have to say to the kids, hey, you know what, we can't stay here. And the, the best way to do that is to have that conversation before you leave. We're going to go to Saugatuck, but we might have to go to someplace else instead so that when you get there and there's a lot of people, there's not a lot of tantrums. That's great advice. Now let's talk about getting to that destination. The experience of flying is undergoing major changes, and many of the new protocols will be in place for quite some time, possibly forever. Ken Goldstein, president of KJG International Consulting in Chicago, joined me on the WBBM Noon Business Hour with the latest. When it comes to the the airline experience at this present time, uh, I was at O'Hare for a story a couple of weeks ago. Everybody was wearing masks to the extent that everybody was at O'Hare. The airport was virtually deserted. Um, uh, air, airplanes themselves are kind of empty right now, uh, load factors in the single digits. But slowly but surely, people are going to return to the sky once again. And once they do, how is that experience going to change? Well, first off, thanks, Rob, for having me on. And I think you touched on it very succinctly. Uh, There aren't that many people flying. Unfortunately, there are times when flights become massively full, which, you know, you see that in the news. But the long and short in flying today, the best word to look at it is caution. Be careful. Uh, As an example, it's the flying, as long as there aren't that many people on the plane, it's not going to be the problem because the air is cleaned and everything like that, and hopefully people will be wearing masks. Some of the airlines have mandated that. But as, as an example, Frontier Airlines wanted to uh, 
say you got to wear the mask. What happens when uh, this person decides to take a mask off during the flight? You got a concern there. So let's look at a standpoint of where what should be done. First off, uh, best thing is always to carry some hand sanitizer, a little small thing to protect yourself. Another thing I'd suggest is in a baggie, take some wipes with you because you want to wipe down the tray, the seat. Uh, for example, if you go to the bathroom, wipe that handle. Going to the bathroom, just to digress a second, Ryanair, which is the big low-cost carrier in Europe, is now setting up you can't just get up to go to the bathroom. You have to kind of raise your hand and let the flight attendant, you know, and then she or he will tell you, go ahead. The other thing that's happening is today is airlines, when they are boarding passengers, they're starting to board from the back. And the reason for that is they don't want people mingling, getting stuck in there, fill the seats, then go forward. Uh, people are trying to stay away from the middle seat. Okay, so, and they don't necessarily want the aisle because, again, you've got all these people coming back down alongside of you, so people are pushing for the window seat. But realistically, even if the wind, uh, middle seat is not taken, you're still not six feet away from someone because there may be someone right behind you. So, again, the best word is caution. And boarding the airplane from the back, you know, very quickly, that's, that was something that used to be done until it became a revenue-generating opportunity. Well, the long and short is you got to remember the airlines want to pack as many people in there as possible. And what happened is you'd get on board and then you'd always fight for the overhead bin. And either you'd pay more for that. The airlines pre-pandemic made billions of dollars on these charges, you know, more seat, more room, baggage, uh, use the bin, etc. These things are not going to happen anymore. Matter of fact, uh, Frontier tried to get ahead and say, look, we're going to charge, if you want to make sure that the middle seat is empty, we're going to charge you $39. And the government came back and said, no, no, that's not allowed. And they dropped it. But these are things to got to be careful about. Let's shift gears and turn our eyes to the auto industry. General Motors, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler are gradually restarting their factories. Joining us with the latest is Jeff Gilbert, CBS News automotive correspondent in Detroit. This is not like flipping a switch and restarting plants. This is restarting pretty much an entire industry, something that is, is a huge challenge. I've been told so far, today they're taking it slowly. So far, so good. There haven't been any real hiccups today but the big test is going to come as they ramp up and they put more of a strain on the supply base you know a lot of suppliers are also coming back to work slowly there are a lot of parts that have to cross the border from mexico so the tale will really be told over the next couple of weeks as to how well this restart is going how many stakeholders were involved in the restart plan was it the cdc obviously the executives did the uaw have a seat at the table uh, how many uh, how many cooks were involved in this uh, particular restart uh, uh, restart game plan yeah, there were a lot involved, and it's interesting to uh, talk about their involvement because I was talking to GM's manufacturing chief and talked about him negotiating the restart with the UAW, and he immediately stopped me and said, we're not negotiating, we're collaborating. And the UAW pretty much understands that it didn't have the power to stop this, but it did have a lot of power to shape it. Now, a lot of governors obviously had to sign off on this. They waited until this date because Michigan's governor had not signed off on it yet. So the industry has been working with, you know, with government, with the union and within itself. 
And then once these uh, assembly lines are up and running once again with uh, with with social distancing and maybe uh, fewer workers uh, uh, on the assembly lines, uh, what kind of uh, automotive market uh, will these completed cars encounter? That's going to be the big question as we go through the summer. The market did not fall as much as expected during the worst of the pandemic. So that's kind of put some strains on inventories. There is some thought that a lot of people sat at home during the last couple of months. So there will be some pent up demand once dealers reopen. But after that, how will this play out? So car makers are are going to get their inventories replenished and then they're going to watch slowly. And we may see some downtime at some plants just to match production to demand. And then a lot of airports in this country are uh, very quiet these days with the travel market virtually collapsing, and that means a lower demand for rental cars. How is the the rental car market going to uh, change the equation for the car makers? Yeah, that's going to be an impact because that's fleet sales and and also fleet sales to companies that uh, may have tighter budgets these days and may decide to let their vehicles go another year or so. So they're definitely going to be impacted on the fleet side. We've already seen that a bit. But, but there's another metric at work is some people are a little afraid of shared transportation, a little afraid of public transportation. So that side of things could get some people who are a little bit more germophobic to decide they want to be in a personal vehicle, not necessarily on a bus or a train. Let's turn our attention to the upcoming college year. A lot of questions on what the college campus will look like this fall and if students are getting what they pay for. Mark Horner, Wealth Advisor at Fairhaven Wealth Management based in Wheaton, joined Cisco Cotto on the WBBM Noon Business Hour to talk about negotiating college tuition amid the COVID pandemic. Uh, Mark, talk about, uh, I guess, how do we do this? I think many parents don't even realize you can do this. So that's a hundred percent right, Cisco. I, I've yet to run into the person where we've talked about this, where they've said, "Oh yeah, I got that. I got that covered." So there's this. I think this halo around uh, colleges and universities that uh, that people don't realize that those prices are absolutely negotiable, and it's uh, it's important to understand that as kids are applying to school, you know, you're chasing the school, but when you get that acceptance letter, the tables have really turned, and now they're chasing the student, and that's the time for maximum power of negotiation because the, the schools are motivated to convert those accepted students into admitted students. So is it as simple as you calling them and saying, hey, uh, we'd love to come there, but we can't do it for this price? It, it can be, absolutely. And so I, we, what we advocate is don't, you know, don't, don't respond via email and say, hey, I'm going to respond to the best, the best bidder. Really, really, price is certainly and cost is certainly an element of, of picking the right school for your uh, for your kids, but it's not the only element. And so when you identify the school that really is your top choice, what we've done is just gone to the school to say, hey, we, we need you to get to this number, put a, put a number out on the table, and if you, and if you get there, then, uh, then you've got us. And, and I have been quite surprised at how frequently this works. It's not a, don't bat a thousand percent, but it, but it, uh, it absolutely can work. And some of the reason why it's important to do this is you don't know what, what things they have, what tools they have in order to make this happen. They have all kinds of scholarships that the student may not even know about. 
Absolutely. And I've seen some some uh, recommendations out there to do a bunch of research on the various grants and scholarships. I'm not a big fan of that. I, I think there's just so much to understand behind the scenes at colleges and universities. I would say let them figure out how to move around the chess pieces to get the deal, uh, to get that pencil sharpened as much as possible. Uh, but the, the important thing is to ask. Don't just take that accept that first acceptance letter as face value. You might be able to sharpen that pencil a bit. Join us next week for another edition on the WBBM In-Depth Podcast, where we take a deep dive into a story we're telling on the air. Be sure to subscribe to receive this free podcast every Wednesday. And, of course, listen anytime to the stories that matter by listening to WBBM on the Radio.com app or on your radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.